Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Hello, Love in Action Nation, and welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Tomas Chamorro for music. He is the chief talent scientist at Manpower Group and professor of business psychology at University College London and Columbia University. Now, Tomas is an international authority in psychological profiling, talent management, leadership development, and people analytics. Now, his new book, it's a controversial one for a lot of people by virtue of its title. It's called, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? This fascinating science-backed book has reignited a long-standing debate. Are women better leaders than men? Well, our guest has the final say on this very sensitive topic based on decades of research. And the answer to the question may not be what you're thinking. So let's dive in. Here's my conversation with Tomas. So I'm here with, and hopefully I won't butcher your name. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give it my my Brazilian attempt with Tomas Chamorro per music. How did I do? Good, but you know, the minute you said you're gonna give it a Brazilian something, it's already <laughs> controversial given that I'm from Argentina. So I'll try to forget that part. But you did very well, nonetheless, especially for a Brazilian. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. For listeners listening, yes, you know, in soccer. Brazil and Argentina are always uh, in battle on the soccer field. And uh, so it's actually nice to, to be able to converse with an Argentina under peaceful terms. Correct. And so, sadly for both of us, uh, increasingly we compete in lower stake settings because other nations uh, beat us both. So we don't even get to uh, face ourselves uh, or each other in finals anymore. <laughs> That's right. So it is a pleasure to uh, have you, Tomas, on the podcast. So welcome officially to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I always start this way, which is unrelated to your work or your book. And that is what puts a smile on your face when you get up in the morning these days, Tomas? Well, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, um, family is a major driver of happiness. So uh, to wake up and see my wife and my daughter puts everything else into perspective. But even though you're saying it's not a question about work, uh, I also consider myself very lucky in that regard because work excites me. And I Mm. always say you know, especially when people aren't listening, that I would do my work for free. (laughs) I'm lucky to get paid because I really feel that I'm privileged to work in an area that I'm very curious about, that I have the energy to, you know, spend a long time on. And really what fascinates me is this possibility to use science and knowledge of psychology to solve practical problems. So most of the times I actually wake up every morning before an alarm goes on or before my young daughter wakes me up even by an idea or a problem that I think, you know, I should try to solve. So uh, I really live this idea of work-life fusion, I think, to a very high degree. Yeah, yeah. So let's get our listeners familiar with what you do. You mentioned psychology and you're an organizational psychologist, but how do you how would you describe your work? So it depends, you know, and sometimes people ask you uh, how would you describe it to the person sitting next to you on a plane? Mostly I would say that I'm a business psychologist and that I try to use theories, methods and tools from psychology to solve problems that are Uh, relevant to organizations. And the fundamental premise here is straightforward. Most organizations have problems that have to do with people. So therefore, understanding people, human behavior, and particularly having the ability to predict and forecast what people are likely to do uh, should be a very helpful solution for organizations. And I very much 
started my career as a full-time academic and became a professor. And increasingly over the past five, six years, I spent or inhabited more time in the real world, still doing some teaching, some research, but mostly I'm on the applied side of the yeah. spectrum now. And so if you imagine this concept of the war for talent, I would say that most of my work focuses on creating the weapons or the tools that enable organizations win this war by using data, science, and technology to understand people better. If you can understand how people differ from each other, what their strengths are, what their potential is, and where they need to improve, you will probably be able to help those individuals as well as their employers. So basically, that's what I do. Mm. Yeah, thanks for that. So I want to get into the book, but it's, it's a fascinating book. Before we drill down to some of the key components that I'm going to talk about, let's talk about the title. I mean, why do so many incompetent men become leaders and how to fix it? I mean, when I opened the, the book from my mail, bam, it just kind of hits you in the face. So what has been the reaction of people about that, that title alone in conversations? You know, so it wasn't intended as a clickbait, but in a way it has the same mixed blessing or double-edged sword effect as this clickbaity titles have in the media, which is uh, on the one hand, it generates a reaction and people share it and comment and are very passionate about it. On the other hand, it sometimes stops them from reading the book or spending much time engaging with the argument because it elicits... Uh, opinions, and it enables people to project their ideology, their prejudices, and their ideas. So um, I divide the reactions, I think, in, in three groups or categories. The first is people who say, yeah, finally, you know, <laughs> and most of those people are obviously women, but not all, you know, and it's impossible to quantify, but I would say maybe 70% are women. Then you have uh, the second group that is scandalized and it, again, without reading the argument or engaging with the argument or reading the book, they accuse me of virtue signaling, male bashing and trying to be politically correct. And 70 or 80% of these people are men, of course. And, and I think then there is the third, uh, despite the provocative nature of the title, they actually scroll down and see what the article and if they have the book, hopefully the book says. And most people in that category, once they digest the argument or they finish the book, they say, well, actually, the book is not as controversial as the title might suggest. It is a book that argues that we should care about having more effective leaders and that right now we could be doing better. And yes, there is the gender sub-angle there, but it's really a book about leadership competence and incompetence. Mm, okay. So question is, why this book? Why now? Look, you know, I think uh, it's important to acknowledge and admit that the book is sort of the offspring of an article that I wrote six years ago. And I think there is a more interesting backstory to the original article, which also had the, the same title and the original idea. And my original article was intended to be an alternative to the lean-in take on gender diversity, which had just come out at the time. So Sheryl Sandberg published, you know, her famous book, and then the whole lean-in paradigm uh, kick-started. And my view was that it was both inaccurate and uh, unwise to blame women for not leaning in and to somehow attribute our gender imbalance in leadership to that problem. Because, first of all, there is no evidence today that in the industrialized world, women don't have the same desire to be leaders as men do. That's not the case. It may have been the case in the 60s or 70s, but that's not true today. And secondly, the problems we have with the quality of our leaders aren't the function of uh, insufficient people who are leaning in, but too many people, usually men, who lean in when they don't have the talents to back it up. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So this was the basis of the argument that we mistake confidence for competence. And when somebody puts themselves forward for a task, for a leadership role, et cetera, we go like, wow, you know, they must know their stuff. I better follow them. And men are very good at this. But actually, that's one of the main reasons why we end up with a lot of people in charge who are not as good as they think. They're unjustifiably pleased with themselves, unaware of their limitations. And I think if we ask women to emulate that, we might end up with more women in charge, but we won't end up with better leaders. Yeah. So that was the article. And, you know, it immediately went to number one on hbr.org. Then every time that an incompetent man was either elected in politics or found out to be engaged in devious or deviant or counterproductive work behavior in the corporate world, it went up to number one again. <laughs> I always uh, tell this backstory that for more or less five years, I was begging HBR Press to do a book on it. And they kept on telling me, look, we can't do this. 70% of our readers are male executives, so we can't insult them. Mm. And I kept telling them that it's not a problem because they won't realize it's about them. You know, it requires some self-awareness to know that you might be in that category. <laughs> anyway, to cut a long story short, in the end, you know, we decided to do it, I think, by and large, influenced by recent political events, the kind of uh, hashtag Me Too age and the popularity of the article, we decided to expand it into a book and, uh, you know, kind of uh, add all the science and also the solution part to the argument, which wasn't there in the original article. So it was a kind of, a, yeah, byproduct of all these uh, factors. Yeah. Well, I'm already gripped by it. Just listening to you talk about some of the things that I've already read just uh, makes it pop out. And, you know, you said that uh, confidence, we mistake confidence for competence. And, and you know, you make the case that we, we tend to equate leadership with these personality traits, more likely, like you said, to be found in men. And then we reward these traits that may later show up as incompetent leadership traits. So what are those male traits that you uncovered? Mm -hmm. So mostly three. Confidence, but it is really problematic when it is exacerbated. So the correct way to label it would be overconfidence, which is actually makes it easier for people to understand because you know if you're very confident, but your confidence is aligned with your ability, then well done, you know, but then your confidence isn't actually providing any advantages, you know, it's your ability that actually lets you do that. Equally, by the way, if you don't have confidence, but it's aligned with your inability, because you, then you can work to get better. So the three um, masculine traits that we incorrectly reward, which contribute to both the overrepresentation of men and incompetent leaders, is our overconfidence, charisma, and narcissism. Mm. So more often than it should be the case, when we see somebody, I don't know, think about a manager who is interviewing for a job or a candidate who is being for the first time evaluated for their leadership potential, if the person seems unaware of their limitations, assertive, bold, charismatic, and even quite full of themselves, we are likely to say, wow, this person must have potential. And unfortunately, you know, later on, that uh, turns out not to be the case more often than not. You know, the ability to charm someone in short-term interactions and the ability to love yourself are not just unrelated to your ability to lead effectively, but also negatively related in many instances. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So there's the charisma. I mean, we, we hear it all the time that, you know, a leader will people will say, oh, he's a charismatic leader or he has charisma. And you got that whole chapter dedicated to charisma and you say that charisma is a myth. And it sounds like most of us have drank the Kool-Aid on this. So what's the charisma myth? Yeah. And, you know, and I want to be a little bit less controversial now and explain really what I mean, because I'm not denying that there can be many charismatic leaders who are competent, ethical, and who know what they're doing. And in which case, charisma will clearly be uh, an important weapon to lead effectively, right? Um, but at the same time, if you focus so much on charisma that we care more about style than substance, and really 
once we understand that charisma is mostly mechanism or a tool that enables you to persuade others and bring them along and get them to do what you want them to do, you can see how there is a dark side to it as well, right? And these might be extreme examples, but there's absolutely no doubt that people like Mao, Stalin, and Hitler were charismatic. And also, I would argue, they would have caused far less damage to the world had they been less charismatic, right? So I'm not saying that we should automatically eliminate leaders who have charisma, but I'm saying that charisma is a powerful tool for persuading others. And if you're not competent or you have crooked morals and uh, you actually want to take advantage of others, you are far more dangerous being charismatic. And at the end of the day, when we focus so much on charisma that we vote for presidential elections based on who would we rather have a beer with or who's the most entertaining, suave, or telegenic candidate. Clearly, if you look at these instances or indicators, you can see that people are not evaluating actual competence, right? Mm -hmm. And if you take something as simple as, I don't know, the recent history of US presidents, right? So there's a lot of data on how they perform, but you ask people, who was a good president, who was a bad president, they still don't bother checking things like how the economy did, what you know happened to health, unemployment, etc. They just say, oh, this guy or that guy, simply because of ideological reasons mm. or stylistic reasons. And to use a completely different and a complete opposite example, and to show you that it is possible that there is another way, uh, for a long time in Germany, every time before the election, many people go to a website where they answer 50 questions about their political views, their attitudes towards the economy, uh, you know, health, social issues, etc. And after answering that simple questionnaire where you tell the survey what you believe and what you want, it tells you, vote for this candidate. And people mm -hmm. actually do it without having seen YouTube videos or footages of them, which seems unthinkable to us. Right. Uh, and okay, that's politics. You would think that in organizations, HR departments are a lot more cerebral, data-driven, evidence-based, but that is not the case. They still meet someone and say, oh, yeah, you know, I like this guy. Mm. Okay, so there's charisma and then there's narcissism, but there's another type of incompetent leadership that that comes out as it's under psychopathy, right? So it's the psychopath. Describe what a psychopath is. How, and how do we know when we come into an environment where there might be a psychopath in our midst that isn't a leadership? How can we be alerted to either a narcissist or a psychopath? Yeah, great question. And so, you know, the first thing to understand is that the most... Um, common occurrence or common real case study that you're likely to encounter in um, normal working environments, let's say outside prisons, right, um, is the subclinical type. So rather than talking about narcissists or psychopaths, we're talking about people with narcissistic tendencies or psychopathic tendencies. Because most things, most psychological traits, whether they are adaptive or maladaptive, are normally distributed, so people differ in degrees, much like they differ in height or weight, right? So, and what is true is that uh, people with psychopathic and narcissistic tendencies over-index in leadership roles. And just to explain, because the, sometimes the term is so loaded that it sounds, you know, shocking, but what we mean by somebody who is psychopathic, uh, it's somebody who lacks empathy, so they can't connect emotionally with others. They have a strong desire to break rules, defy the status quo, the, to the point that they can engage in cruel acts towards others and enjoy it. Uh, they are likely to engage in tactics of manipulation to uh, advance their own self-interest, even when it means, or especially when it means, harming others. And generally speaking, you know, they are extremely socially skilled, but with aggressive underpinning motives, right? Mm -hmm. 
So you can see when we describe people like that, that it's already somebody can think about, you know, traditional fictional psychopaths like Dexter, you know, or real uh, psychopaths that were caught like Bernie Madoff, right? Or the Enron guys. But we can also think of famous entrepreneurs, um, right? Because actually there is a disruptive antisocial nature there, but successful entrepreneurs actually keep their dark side, dark side tendencies in check and manage to do something that is, you know, for, for the wider good of society. When we're talking about people with narcissistic tendencies, they tend to be megalomaniac. They think more highly of themselves than they should. They are entitled. They have a very big but fragile ego. So when criticized, they react very aggressively and defensively. And also they are very self-centered and unable to connect with others or build long-term relationships. A lot of the times people have both narcissistic and psychopathic tendencies. And you can see even listening to this description why there would be personal advantages for people who display a little bit of this because, um, you know, evolutionary scientists call this the free rider effect. The healthier and more moral and pro-social a system, the more these people will benefit taking advantage of others and operating much like, you know, bacteria or parasitic agents operate in, in certain environments. And when these people are leaders, they create rotten or toxic cultures that make everything snowball. Hmm. Wow. So, you know, people think that if men are incompetent leaders, then you fix the problem by removing those people with the narcissistic tendencies and the psychopathic tendencies and the the overconfident men, and you place more women into those leadership roles. And then we solve this Gallup employee engagement survey, right? Hmm. But you don't see it that way. Well, it overlaps, but there is a difference in the order of the solution, which is important because um, firstly, my argument is that uh, although I do um, believe in the social justice or fairness reason or argument for having more women in leadership, you know, I, do, I, mean, I, I do think that it's only just that that happens. I, I think it is naive to expect Um, businesses, for-profit corporations, to genuinely care about reducing social inequalities, you know, because they have to be accountable to their shareholders and they have to make money, right? So often when we say, look, it's only just to have more women in charge, you're actually harming women because then businesses automatically assume, business leaders who are male assume that, okay, there is no business case here. This is you know, an altruistic crusade that is anti-meritocratic and, oh, it's like some, uh, like positive discrimination or regulation. Mm. So what I'm saying in a nutshell is that the best gender diversity intervention is to actually have a meritocracy, is to focus on talent. That if organizations or when organizations, because sometimes they do, when organizations are able to correctly evaluate somebody's potential for leadership and they manage to focus on competence rather than confidence and humility rather than charisma and integrity rather than narcissism, they will not just improve the quality of their leaders, but also end up with more women leaders. Mm. Not just to the point that there will be a balanced gender ratio, but if anything, there will be slightly more women than men in leadership roles because Today, uh, when we need, maybe because we overselected for hyper-masculine traits for so long, when we are in a special need to have leaders who have emotional intelligence, pro-social tendencies, self-awareness, humility, integrity, and coachability, these features are more feminine than masculine. And by the way, if we select on these traits, we would also have a different type of male leaders some that are more feminine than today. Mm. Well, you probably answered the next question because you've listed some of the uh, the qualities. But early in the book, you wrote something that really did a number on me. And I know listeners will probably drop their jaw. You wrote, and I quote, the same psychological characteristics 
that enable men to emerge as leaders and may actually be responsible for their downfall. What it takes to get the job is not just different from, but also sometimes the reverse of what it takes to do the job. So I guess the million dollar question, you've probably already answered, but what are those universal qualities? Would you say that make leaders, both men and women, more effective? Yeah, so they are, first of all, you need to have uh, competence, which I break down as having technical expertise, right. your experience, your know-how, you know, those things are still important. And by the way, you know, people report these things in the resume, but you really need to have expertise yourself to determine whether somebody has expertise. And then the other part of competence, which is things like intelligence, curiosity, learning ability, or learnability in general. So that's the first one. Then you need to have the ability to manage yourself and manage other people, right? So broadly, we could refer to them as people skills. And in general, men and women don't differ too much in their people skills. But when it comes to the part that pertains self-control, helping others, being kind and caring, and empathizing with others, women do have an advantage. And ironically, for most of the past decades, we accuse women of being you know, having the wrong profile for leadership because they were too kind and caring. Well, after selecting too many narcissistic, overconfident and psychopathic leaders, we are in desperate need of leaders who are kind and caring, who don't put themselves first, but care about their teams and so forth. So broadly, you know, people skills, competence and integrity, you know, integrity. And again, uh, I, I don't want to uh, give the impression that um, there is a big categorical divide between women being good and men being bad at these things, because the reality is that so many men are actually uh, overlooked for leadership roles when they display these, uh, you know, selfless, empathetic and altruistic characteristics, or for example, when they don't show hubris and overconfident. I was speaking to a journalist yesterday who told me, so what, but who wants to follow a leader who says, I don't know? And I thought it was a ridiculous question. Like, first of all, most of the important and relevant problems in life are very hard to answer. So more often than not, you don't know the answer. So Maybe people love following others who seem certain, but as Voltaire once noticed, you know, doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is ridiculous. So we should expect a level of maturity in our followers and subordinates that actually, if a leader says, I don't know, my reaction will be like, okay, they will work it out. They're not overconfident. They're going to prepare to find an answer. And I can still trust that person to guide me to an answer, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So in relation to this female advantage in leadership, and we know that uh, EQ or emotional intelligence, women lean towards having those competencies that fall in their EQ. But uh, you found something about IQ. You want to touch on that? When it comes to IQ, the gender differences are actually trivial. You know, you have to look at cognitive abilities specifically. And then for the past decades, what we found is that men typically have higher spatial intelligence. Most of the times, unless you're, I don't know, in military leadership or engaged in like, you know, very physical activities, the importance of that has been diluted with women scoring higher on verbal intelligence, right? So we know that because of that, women are better communicators. Uh, they spend more time explaining things, even though men, of course, mansplain things. Uh, <laughs> and I think the most interesting two data points that we have to acknowledge is that, first of all, for the first time in history, in most of the industrialized world, women outperform men at university, mm. uh, outnumbering them and getting higher grades in the majority of subjects. And okay, you know, a good degree or high grades doesn't make you a 
strong leader, but they're still the main currency when we evaluate somebody's intellectual capital, right? So, and maybe it's not a reflection of uh, the superior female intelligence, but the fact that women might be more curious, study harder. Anyway, they do better than men. And the second one really has to do with, I think, level of humility and uncertainty that helps female leaders over-prepare and be more prepared when it comes to facing assignments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, we often reward people, men or women, but especially men, when they manage to, you know, BS their way up and they improvise and they come up with, like, it's a sign of being streetwise and astute to do that. But actually, uh, from a social or group level of analysis, we are much better off having leaders who are who develop competent, right? Competence. So although IQ wise not so many differences when it comes to competence, increasingly women outperform men. Hmm. Yes. And that might be surprising for a lot of people, as well as uh, reassuring for others. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've investigated, interviewed, and researched so many different people have come up as having the kind of uh, leadership competencies that, that we should all strive to look for. Does anybody come to mind, whether in the private sector or government or nonprofit, that you could say, oh, now that is a model to strive for? Who would it be? So, you know, I, I have many examples, but my favorite example, because it would be the kind of textbook case study, if my book had a cover, well, so the reverse of what I discussed in my book. So what's the kind of the other side of the coin or somebody who would say it's like the model to follow, right? Yeah. So since the book is about incompetent men, it has to be a competent woman. And my favorite example there is Angela Merkel. You know, I think she really defies the norm in so many ways. First of all... And who is she for those of us that don't, aren't yeah. aware? Yeah. So the chancellor of Germany. So in effect, the head of state in Germany. And um, first of all, few people, even her biggest fans you know, would accept that she's not charismatic, right? She's somebody who, I mean, she has a PhD in physics or chemistry, it always looks the same when she speaks, is in a very low voice. Uh, there's never any exciting sound bites. She would never go viral, right? So <laughs> yeah, she's arguably running, you know, one of the five biggest countries in the world, biggest economies in the world. She's done it consistently for 10 years or so, exceeding results or KPIs vis-a-vis expectations than her neighbors. She's also not her own star in her own show and about to, you know, leave way for her successor, even though she's still pretty popular. And she has shown over the years that she is very uh, pragmatic, unbiased, and emotional. In the beginning, you know, she started as a hardcore conservative and socialists or liberals disliked her because, you know, she was kind of more right wing. Uh, now it's the other way around because she showed more interest in kind of socialist causes. But there's absolutely no doubt to me that she is the best performing politician of the last 10 years. And yet, there will be no movies about her, probably. You know, a movie about her will be really boring. She wakes up, has breakfast with her husband, goes to meetings well-prepared, lets other people talk during meetings, makes rational decisions, runs Germany well, no scandals. That's the interesting thing, is that there is a certain morbid curiosity in us. We're we're fascinated by characters like... Um, the Wolf of Wall Street and the like. And, but because of that, in the back of our mind, we fantasize that leaders need to be delinquents in order to be successful or effective. And the reality is that if you measure leadership in terms of how people, leaders impact others, you need them to be calm, smart, caring, and ethical. Mm. Do we have an equivalent of that in the private sector and business entrepreneurship, yeah. either past or present? Yeah. So, you know, and I think the most interesting example here, given that he is an entrepreneur and in finance, right, would be Warren Buffett. Ah. And what's interesting is that, you know, of course, he is a man, but actually 
he not only displays many of the positive feminine characteristics that I talk about in the book, altruism, empathy, emotional intelligence. Uh, of course, he's incredibly smart, you know, from an IQ sense. Um, but he's very kind, humble, honest, and caring. And uh, if you read his autobiography, it shows you also that he coached himself to develop this style, right? Mm -hmm. So he was a very geeky and introverted guy in school, apparently enrolled in Dale Carnegie's Academy, you know, the guy who wrote How to Win Friends and Influence People, when he was probably running the workshop still, and uh, taught himself to be kind, more interested in others, more pro-social, more self-aware. And, you know, in an environment that is very ruthless and where Gordon Gecko has represented the archetype for so long, you have Warren Buffett being the complete opposite and the most successful. Yeah, yeah, that's a great... There is a way, you know, sometimes we don't remember stereotypes that uh, people that don't match our stereotypes, but it's very important that we do because our stereotypes are often flawed. Yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about, for those of us that are listening that are in the roles of leadership development or um, evaluating talent, you know, perhaps even in the, in the selection process, you stress that we need to be better at the potential piece, evaluate uh, leadership potential. And I totally agree with that. And you offer some good tools for selecting better leaders. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, and I think that my most important point here is that both selection and development are super important, but there is a disproportionate focus on development and not enough on selection, you know? Too often, uh, when selection fails, there is learning, training, coaching, and development. And, you know, of course, you can always make people better, but your return on investment is going to be substantially higher if you already selected people with potential, right? So both of us could become opera singers, but, you know, if you want to develop the next greatest opera singer, you will probably spend less time training people if they have great singing potential or a good voice to begin with. So the same happens in the field of leadership and the tools that I uh, mentioned, well, first of all, I make the case that most of the scientifically endorsed or proven ways to identify leadership potential, those methodologies have been around for five or six decades. So in a way, it's quite depressing because why aren't people using them, right? So Mostly, you would um, select out people based on their technical competence or expertise. No need to reinvent the wheel there. You look at their background experience track record. Uh, then you would use a combination of personality assessments and cognitive ability to identify things like people skills, integrity, intelligence, learning potential, right? And then you would follow up with a well-designed, structured interview that actually resembles almost like a checklist of things, right? Mm -hmm. So if you do that, uh, I was, you know, uh, illustrated with a very simple example. Imagine that you can choose between two candidates and if you flip a coin, you have 50% likelihood of getting the better candidate for a leadership role. That's flipping a coin, right? Yep. If you do what I described your um, predictive accuracy or success rate goes up from 50 to about 75. So you will still make mistakes, but hey, you know, if you get it right 75% of the time, there's a huge utility to that. Yeah. And by the way, then you can still coach and develop people to make them better. But one of the ironies and complexities of this um, kind of a topic is that the people that are going to be most coachable and benefit the most from your coaching and development intervention are those who need it the least because they already had great potential, right? So who responds effectively to coaching? People who are humble, curious, competent, and who want to improve, right? And, and they're probably doing well, so it's like taking somebody with great athletic potential and turning them into a super athlete. Whereas the people who really need coaching 
are closer to the uncoachable end of the spectrum. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. So this is a question that I uh, ask all my guests. So I'm going to ask you, in your view, why do you think people lead by fear instead of these characteristics that you feature in your book? And I'm thinking more of the caring type, of mm-hmm. the humble type. What, why is that that, that that happens? And we lean towards those that are that tend to lead by fear and other unhealthy, toxic behaviors. I think in general, in the corporate world and in, in most organizations, you know, there is too much focus on short-term objectives and results and too little on uh, long-term, you know, goals and, and outcomes. And there are two ways to get people to do something. One is through power, which, you know, entails changing your behavior. If you don't do this, I'll fire you. And the other is through persuasion or influence, which essentially equates to making you want to do something, right? Now, the, the latter, the second type, is a lot more effective because once you gain people's will, values, and hearts, so to say, you don't have to be watching them all the time. You don't have to tell them every day what to do. And you can expect a level of commitment and engagement that you can't obtain when you are forcing people to do something. But at the same time, it's a lot more hard work to do so, right? And by the way, there are also many leaders who don't do either. So they are just the boss and they're focused on managing up and they don't even tell people, if you don't do this, I'll fire you, right? So uh, that's probably the most common case of mismanagement or what we call absentee leadership or less fair leadership. And that one as well is much more common in men than women. Men are much more likely to be hands-off and not manage, not lead than women who tend to be more hands-on. So I've heard the saying that goes like this, your life is the small things repeated daily. What small things do you habitually do to be a better leader yourself? Yeah, I, I love that saying. And I, you know, I had a slide in my personality class that was similar that I attributed to Aristotle for a long time, but it turns out it's you know, one of these fake quotes that abounds. Like, seems like the internet is this great place to find fake quotes. Mostly it's... Uh, Confucius, Aristotle, or uh, I don't know, Oscar Wilde. But, yeah, exactly. Which was, you are what you repeatedly do, right? And I think that's my definition of personality is your habits, what you repeatedly do. So I love both of these quotes, yours and this one. And ultimately, I think any form of uh, leadership development or any attempt to improve your leadership potential boils down to building new habits, eliminating, but erasing bad behaviors and creating new habits. So not just one-offs good things like, okay, today I didn't interrupt and let people talk or I gave people accurate feedback or worked hard and that's it. No, systematically replacing bad habits for better habits. So if you want to use the, you know, keep doing, stop doing, start doing framework, that's fine. Uh, I think what's fascinating about it is that anybody can do this, and yet it's so hard because habits happen almost by osmosis or inadvertently, but once they cement, they're very hard to change, you know? And certainly things like the strengths-based movement, like just do what you're good at and play to your strengths, fuel this natural tendency we have to operate within our comfort zone. So to answer your question, in a way, doing something that makes you uncomfortable every day or every week will probably help you develop or start developing a wider repertoire of behaviors that actually enable you to almost go against your nature, you know? And it can be sometimes things that are very daunting and very hard, but sometimes they're the little things, you know, that you don't realize can make a big difference. Yeah, and I've, I've heard the saying that the more you put something into habit, you literally retrain your brain. The plasticity in your brain changes. So exactly. that's great. 
I would love to uh, have you give a shout out to other authors or even, uh, you know, people that do research that aligns with your work. Are there any books or any colleagues that you would want to give a shout out to or recommend for further reading, discussion, study? Yes, so many, you know. I mean, I tend to not read so many books in my area because you spend so much time reading the research directly that then, you know, books tend to be a summary of that. But nonetheless, and I'll go with the ones that are in the top of my head, you know, Oliver Bergman, who writes for The Guardian, he has a column with the title, This Column Will Change Your Life. And it's kind of a cynical take on all the positive uh, self-help advice that doesn't really work and you know sort of he emphasizes the positive aspects of negativity uh, his last book is called I can't remember the actual first word but it's basically happiness for people who don't want to be happy right so it's like something around the positive aspect of negative uh, thinking um, I think Adam Grant you know in, in my area uh, is a rare case of he does the research, he popularizes it, but he's still faithful to the science, you know, and doesn't bastardize it. And uh, actually, you know, it, he bridges that world between good research and almost self-help applications, you know. So, uh, so I enjoy reading him. Recently, I read this book, I can't remember the author, but about bullshit jobs and the bullshit economy. Great book very much recommended to your listeners uh, on all the people in the world that do things that are pretty pointless if you think about what they do, you know, even if there is an economic value uh, to that, to what they do. And then uh, Heidi Grant, I mean, Heidi Grant Halverson, uh, she wrote this little book, Nine Things Successful People Do Differently. Yeah. And then a number of other books. So she also writes for HBR and is a really, really, really smart thinker when it comes to everyday nudges and behaviors. So uh, yeah, those are some that come to mind. Uh, I don't want to bore you with the other ones, you know, <laughs> sort of medieval philosophy and stuff like that. <laughs> well, those are excellent choices. I'll, I'll be sure that we're going to put that in our show notes for people to refer to. So I want to transition just uh, as we round the corner and head towards the finish line here. Personally, what is tugging at your heart right now that you would like listeners to know? So, you know, one of the areas that I'm really interested in is, and I mean, it's quite obvious because we are inundated with discussions on it, but yeah, I mean, it's broadly the interface between humans and machines or, you know, how to be human in the AI and digital age. And I think a lot of the work that I've been doing in the last two or three years focuses broad, focus broadly on this idea of kind of what, what does the future of work look like in an age where humans are going to need to work with machines, lead machines, and maybe even be managed by machines. Is it an incremental change in the way we work? Is it kind of a quantum leap or a categorical substantial change? And nobody has the answer, of course. Nobody has uh, data on the future, whatever they claim. So uh, I'm very interested in looking at what's, you know, sometimes the future is already here, but not normally distributed. If you look at things that might be rare, unusual, freaky almost, but to evaluate the extent to which they might become the mainstream or quite common in the future, and whether, you know, to what degree things like automation and AI will impact us for good or for bad, or what will be good and what will be bad about that. That's something that I'm very interested in, and I'm really enjoying learning about things like, you know, the macroeconomics of the labor market and the economy and so forth which really complement my understanding of people from a psychological or bottom-up kind of a level. Yeah. You know, this has been a, uh, an important conversation. I think your book is on the cusp of something special that a lot of people are, are, are going to have to tune into. And I want to make sure that nothing is falling through the cracks in this conversation. So is there anything that I should have asked but didn't? No, maybe I will finish with a question to you. And obviously, it's a spontaneous one. This is not scripted, but uh, <laughs> it's a question that just occurred to me. So if 
since you read the book, if you had to think about a descriptive and totally non-controversial or polemical title that, you know, basically were the book, okay, it says, it does what it says in the tin, think about the boring title, what would you have called it? You know, I would have called something to the effect of looking at the top of the leadership mountain. This is what we should strive for, regardless of your gender. And if you're going to make the hike up to the top of the hill, yeah, it's, it's going to be a difficult journey because when you talk about things like humility and empathy and emotional intelligence, you know, there's a journey there to progress towards those attributes, right? And yeah. so, although the, the book seems to focus on the incompetency that we see prevalent in men in most organizations, and, and it's sort of like the, the air gets sucked out of the room in that direction because that, that's what we have seen historically. We yeah. got to bring the focus back to what you said are the competencies, yes. right? And so, and it's not so much, we're, we're not getting into a gender war here. Yeah. We're calling both men and women to aspire to a higher level of, of leadership. No, that's a very long title. <laughs> well, but I like, I like maybe the last part, a higher level of leadership is good or ultimately, yeah. if you want to keep the question format, it should be what kind of leaders do we really want? Or mm. Right. And then right. I agree. If you do that, then the gender issue uh, becomes a secondary, uh, you know, or diluted element because it is about talent. It's a book about talent. Ultimately. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Um, I want to end this by giving you a chance to bring the conversation home your way. I do this with every guest. So what would you like our listeners to walk away with that will make a difference in their lives that they can carry forward? You know, I think if there is one take-home message that I could finish it with or emphasize, um, I think just challenge your preconceptions, you know, challenge your preconceptions. In a way, books are a bit like uh, presidential elections. People hardly ever change what they thought before, and they usually vote for the same party. And it's quite interesting and paradoxical to me that in an age of ubiquitous information, it's easier than ever to be misinformed and live within our bubbles, you know? So when you write a book, it's nice when you get positive comments from people who already agreed with the message and what can you do when people don't engage or they don't agree. But I think ultimately um, what any idea communicated via a book, debate, or TED Talk, whatever you format you want to pick, should try to do is to open up people's minds and challenge or change the way they thought of something, right? And I often do that by forcing myself to listen to people that I don't like or don't agree with or watching news channels that I don't agree because you can learn more from them than from listening to the same old thing over and over again. You know, so I think ultimately where human intellect reaches its limits is in falling into this trap where when we have a choice between understanding reality or seeing ourselves in a positive vein, too often we choose the latter. Mm. You know? uh, so, yeah, so I would say my, my final message would be challenge your preconceptions and, uh, and I think grow by understanding that there is a different way of thinking about things. So um, it reminds me of a slide that I put into my speaking engagements with Yoda. And I'm going to go old school Star Wars from 1982. And Yoda tells Luke Skywalker, you must unlearn what you have learned. Right. It's a total paradigm shift here. And so I challenge our listeners also, uh, those that have a worldview of a belief system, um, that may be a little far back or maybe um, a little obsolete is to look at yourself in the mirror and say, what is it that I have to unlearn today? Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> so where do people connect with you if they want to learn more about you, get your email updates or get yeah. your books, where do they go? So look, the, the two main places are my Twitter handle. I'm quite active on Twitter and post updates on, you know, my articles, interviews, talks, materials, books there so it's at 
DRTCP, so Dr. TCP. TCP are my initials and Dr. as in, you know, DR. And then my website, which is drthomas.com. And it's Thomas with no H. So D-R-T-O-M-A-S.com. And again, lots of updates there and they can find out about some of my work, speaking and uh, books, etc. There you have it. Well, I got to say, it's been a proverbial blast talking to you. So get his book. It's called Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? Thank you so much for allowing us to take a front row seat into this very important work that you're doing, Tomas. When I come back, I'll have my key takeaways from this stimulating conversation and final comment. And I'll do that after this short message. There's a dramatic shift taking place in workplaces around the world. It's a rapidly growing movement called the Humans First Club. Change is happening bigger and faster than any time in history. For business to flourish through this dynamic time, it's time to trash the old school command and control mindset and put people at the center of business. It's time to put humans first. Live events with the growing online community is driving change throughout the globe. It's time for your voice, your ideas for a brighter future. Join us now at humansfirst.club. That's humansfirst.club. Your time has come. You belong here. Wow, that conversation with Tomas was a wake-up call. I mean, I've always known as a practitioner and leadership coach that Some of the traits he's talked about has been true for decades. I mean, we read about them in leadership books, but to have Tomas, a world-class psychologist, verify it as truth with data, that brings it home for me. If you haven't gotten this book, it's going to transform your thinking. So here are my takeaways. Those three masculine traits that we incorrectly reward, which explains why there are so many incompetent men in leadership roles, well, they are overconfidence charisma, and narcissism. And more often than not, when we perceive people in leadership and management roles as charismatic or bold or charming or extroverted, we wrongly assume that they must have leadership potential. And unfortunately, later on, these traits become problematic. So on charisma, Tomas does point out that, you know, people in leadership roles can and do have charisma, And many of them are competent, they're ethical, and they're well-respected. And charisma does help leaders to influence others and, you know, get people to move in the right direction. But charisma, well, it has a dark side. He says even Hitler and Stalin were charismatic. So if you're not competent and you have crooked morals, you are far more dangerous being charismatic. So that means we have to evaluate our leaders on competence. We have to be evidence-based when hiring and promoting our leaders and, and not going off stylistic points or what we feel as a hunch about them because our intuition may be wrong. Now, be aware, folks, some of our leaders, even amongst us right now, may have narcissistic and psychopathic tendencies. So how do we know to stay away from choosing leaders with these tendencies and promoting them up the ladder? Now, Tomas says for narcissists, they lack empathy. They're entitled and they think very highly of themselves. So they have huge egos, but fragile egos because they can't take criticism well. So they react aggressively and even defensively to criticism and feedback. And they have a strong desire to break rules and they often engage in cruel acts toward others and they enjoy it. In fact, they like to manipulate to advance their own self-interest, especially when it means harming others. But, you know, they're socially skilled and very smart, so they may fly under the radar. When these people become leaders, unfortunately, they create toxic environments. Now, the argument that Tomas makes for having more women in leadership is that you don't hire more women as a social justice cause because that will actually harm women. So when organizations correctly evaluate potential for leadership, potential and they focus on leadership competence rather than confidence and charisma. So when we put the focus on traits like emotional intelligence, humility, integrity, and self-awareness, we not only improve the quality of our leaders and our companies perform better, 
but we also end up with more women leaders. In fact, he says there will be slightly more women than men in leadership roles because these features of leadership competence are more feminine in nature, which is totally different than today's focus on those hyper-masculine traits that we tend to over-select in hiring and promoting leaders. You know, I was thinking, this cycle is so hard to break because more often than not, we have those leaders in decision-making positions with those same hyper-masculine tendencies doing the hiring and promoting. But it definitely needs to be broken. So here's the clincher. If we select leaders on these pro-social traits and soft skills like humility, integrity, emotional intelligence, etc., and of course, we throw in the technical skills and the expertise required to do the job well, we have a different type of male leader with those more feminine traits that are known for success on the job. Now, that's what's going to open up lots of doors for women as well to join the leadership ranks. So the tide of great leadership will rise for both men and women. And to me, that's a win for both genders. My special thanks to Tomas for such a stimulating and thought-provoking conversation. And thank you, Love and Action Nation, for taking part of it. Now, if you want to get the show notes to this episode, you can go to marcelschwantes.com, click on the Love and Action podcast. And if you'd like to comment on the show, hashtag Love and Action podcast will get you there. I'll also be posting this episode on Twitter and LinkedIn so you can follow the discussion there as well. Lastly, I'm offering a free copy of Tomas's book to the first person that emails me through my contact page at marcelschwantes.com. Type in free book giveaway on the subject line and the first response gets a copy of the book shipped out. This offer will end June 1, 2019. On behalf of my great team at One Stone Creative, thank you, ladies. My name is Marcel Schwantes. Join me next week when I sit down and chat with Julie Winkle Giulioni, best-selling author of Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.